Welcome to the second of Rick's talks on theology and design. This talk is one of the most foundational talks, I think, um, that we've that's come out of Gospel Conversations. Uh, Rick really um, gives a... Um, an argument from first principles, absolutely from first principles, around uh, why design, that's a modern word, that's not a biblical word, is a, is a better angle or grammar to discover God and think about God than theology. And uh, the fact that Design is a non-biblical, non-religious word is really part of the point of what Rick is, is saying. He's saying that we have put God into a box uh, with theology. And in this, in this talk, he, he really ex uh, decomposes that box as owing far too much to Greek Hellenistic reasoning. So the religious box, ironically, has itself got distorted and misshapen the view of God um, unwittingly um, and lost a lot of the wonder and surprise of who the Jewish revelation of God and the Christian revelation of God reveals. Um, one of the bad byproducts of that, of course, is, is that we've now got a blocker to evangelism because that concept of God, that omnipotent, unchanging, cardboard cutout figure in the sky view of God is actually, is actually not very welcome in the modern mind. The modern mind has rejected that God of theology. <clears throat> Ironically, the modern world is very indebted to the world of design and desperately needs a, um, an approach to life that's, that somehow or other um, reconciles the reality of existence with the ultimates of meaning. So we have a hungry, hungry age, but in order to feed that hungry age, we need to rediscover the God revealed in the Bible. Now, for Rick, the word design, not being a religious word, is an enormously useful angle onto that, and I agree <coughs> wholeheartedly. And in this talk, there are it's really worth listening to several times because Rick has some very big ideas that, like a domino, start to start to connect or collapse into each other. And that word design, if you start there, starts will take us into big words like particularly change and experience and the nature of is change good or not. So um, I highly commend this to you, worth taking notes on, worth a couple of listens because... Rick's not skating over the surface here. This is one of those talks that's profound, um, not complicated. And profundity comes on you in layers. It doesn't just come on you straight away. So my, that's why I recommend let, let this talk wash over you, 
then listen again, let it seep into you. And I think you'll find it will change the way we think. Most preciously, it changes the way we think about God. And whilst the talk at one level is highly intellectual, it's not, and apparently philosophical, what it leaves us with, in my experience, is a deeper love of God, a deeper recognition of, of who he is and how he works, and a deeper faith. So enjoy this, and God bless you as you listen to it. Okay, so, um, well, welcome. Thanks for coming. It's great to see you all. And uh, I don't know, um, Tony, you pay for all of this food, don't you? Have we ever said, do we say thank you on a regular basis? No, we will tonight, though, won't we? Thank you. Thank you. Oh, Ron, too. Okay, one for Ron. Thank you, mate. Thank you, Ron. Are you suitably embarrassed? Not enough? You need to be more embarrassed. Let's go. Come back for more later. Okay, so um, this is part two of a three-part talk and just uh, thinking through the best way to talk about God. Uh, of course, we've inherited a certain way of doing that. But um, as I mentioned last time, different things have happened, you know, meeting guys at gospel conversations and thinking through the nature of the scripture itself. So the basic argument I'm making, the basic thesis is... Uh, Design language is the best way to talk about God. If anything, scripture is God's rhetoric in the really positive sense of creating a new world by persuading people and how you do that. Right? Uh, and it's rhetoric, in a sense, over against what some of us might regard as logos. So I know it's a bit provocative, but I tend to think traditional ways of doing theology have not normally enabled the church to deal with change. It hasn't made us nimble. Um, Sometimes we've hung on to the wrong things. So I don't believe everything's up for grabs. I do believe there's something that's constant. I'm not so sure our way of doing theology, our way of doing theology, is necessarily the way of doing that. So the best way to do that. So anyway, that's kind of where I'm coming from. Uh, as I normally do, uh, I have a bit of a review time. So very quickly, we'll have a look at what we discussed last week. See who was awake. So you might um, recall that we began with a chap called uh, Manuel Lima giving a talk, a TED talk, and he was talking about different models of organising our knowledge. And the first model he talked about was the chain, the chain of being. So this really comes from Aristotle, where you start at the highest level with what he calls God, and then you work your way down. Uh, this became a tree through a chap called Porphyry. You might have heard of him. Um, wasn't very friendly toward Christianity. But he took this chain idea of a series of steps and expanded each of those steps out. Right? So we're mostly familiar with a tree in a reverse orientation where you start from the root and work your way out. But that really grows out of Aristotle's categories. Right? And then what uh, Lima was arguing is, is, in fact, that these models are no longer really adequate for the world we're in. And nowadays they talk much more about networks. Now, you know, we're aware of, say, the environment. You know, we think, we realise now you can't, muck about with one bit without changing the rest drastically. So there's an interconnectedness. And so we're moving. And of course, these are our models. We choose them. They're not inherent in the way things are. Right? This is our way of making sense of them. So one of the first things I wanted to suggest was maybe we need to be thinking more in network models than chains or trees. All right? Now, um, that's the first point. The second one we looked at had to do with the whole question of why theology looks different from scripture. You know, I know that kind of sounds provocative. 
Well, that's me. It is provocative. But uh, I'm not the first one to notice this. Uh, I think Paul on Mars Hill, when he's confronting the Stoics and the Epicureans, he doesn't do that kind of theology. He grounds his in narrative, right? And Tertullian, I think, recognised this. Poor old Tertullian gets a lot of stick. You heard of Tertullian? You know, I've been in lectures where people have mocked him, uh, which, you know, well, I don't think they get what he's doing. Uh, I think he understands that dialectical reason is not the way you get to know God, not the way God revealed himself in Scripture. And then I also mentioned William Tyndale, who was utterly frustrated because when he went to Oxford, he had to do four years of Aristotle before he got to look at sacred Scripture. And he got a bit cranky about that. And he felt all he really they did was inure you to the message of the gospel by totally messing your head up with this stuff and you didn't actually get to hear its message. So all of that is just a shameless act of self-justification, right? I'm not the only one who recognises a problem here, okay? We talked about that. Now, um, what might lie behind this? And that's where I uh, showed you the little clip of Ian the Gilchrist. Anyone actually download and have a look at it, go back and have a glance? It's really worth thinking through, folks. I really would encourage you. Um, I, re- I think he's onto something. So they've actually done tests where, as it were, they, they freeze the right brain right? and they show the person uh, their left hand, which the um, right brain controls, and the person just pushes it away. It's not my hand. Right? Just the left brain refuses to recognise it. And they've done tests with people drawing pictures and left brain-style pictures. They're great on detail but utterly incoherent. There's no sense of wholeness to them. So what's interesting uh, to me about this is one of the things that that makes us who we are as Christians is we believe that humans are psychosomatic unities. What's that? Is he speaking in tongues here? Say it quickly enough, you never know what would happen, right? But, you know, psycho, soul, because we don't mean by soul what the Greeks mean, and soma body. So we talked last time, and Edwin Judges talked about this, that eternal war of body and soul really begins with the Pythagoreans and then works its way up from there. Um, that's not the Christian worldview. Right? We really do believe that you can't be human apart from a, a body. That's why you've got to, you've got to have a resurrection. Right. Now, if that's true, uh, that raises all kinds of questions for me about some of our views of what it means to be human, right? that somehow the soul is separate from who we are. I don't really believe that anymore. I, I don't think you can actually, in a sense, have a soul if you don't have a body. Right? They're just deeply integrated and if you don't have a body, there's nothing in which the Spirit of God can dwell, which is what the image of God language is about, right? It's the, the Spirit indwelling the image. Okay? So I'm not surprised that there's a connection between our physiology and who we are as persons and how we think about things. I think that's how God made us. And I suspect any nervousness, any residual nervousness we have about that probably goes more to our Hellenism than it does to the biblical view. Now, I'm still in process of getting my head around that because I still find myself slipping out of this at times and I'm in the process of being converted. So we did this kind of right brain, left brain thing and the basic argument I was trying to make here was that, um, or McGilchrist is making, is first of all, he wants to affirm that you need both sides. You really have to have both and they're communicating thousands of times a second or more. Right? It's not as if reason resides in one side or the other. There's an integration that goes on. What's helpful for me is that the left brain is really good on focus and clarity. Right? It's really good at removing anything that gets in the right of what it knows to be important. Of course, it doesn't know it's important until the right brain tells it. Right? 
The right brain is the thing that says, oh, you know, um, remember the little Tweety bird eating its seed, right? There be Reynard the fox, says the right brain. Left brain, ding, okay, now we look and we're ready to act and everything else gets excluded except Reynard and I make my escape, okay? So he says they both belong together. He says the problem is the left brain is so articulate in defending its own worldview that it can ignore anything that doesn't fit. I think this is the problem with a number of scientists who are just absolutely committed that the world is material, 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 and anything that doesn't fit, they just ignore. That's what the left brain can naturally do. So the right brain is much more open to that. It's much more uh, wide-angle lens rather than narrow. It's about embodiedness. It's about particularity. Uh, It's not thinking in terms of abstract categories. And it seems to me that actually Scripture is much more like that than this. Now, it's a matter of emphasis. You need both. No one's saying you just need one and not the other. You need both. But what McGilchrist is arguing, and I'm going to, going to argue as well, is that this ought to take priority. And that's what Scripture looks like. Scripture's much more like this, much more like networks, than it is this kind of thing. Right? Right, so the question is, um, how should we do theology? If this is the way things actually are, um, do we have to rethink and reframe the way we talk about it. Okay, so um, then we asked the question, or at least I did, vicariously for all of you, uh, whence this tension? If we do live in a world where history is the fundamental thing we experience, this must have begun somewhere. And my argument was, drawing on people like Edwin Judge, but also Larry Atado, uh, Kevin uh, Rowe, there's a bunch of them, Uh, who recognise that there is a fundamental clash between these two ways of seeing. And again, it's a bit of an old trope in that there's always been some tension between Bible and theology. If you've ever been to a seminary, uh, you'll know what that's like. (laughs) I've lived in it. I've seen it happen. And, you know, even with the best will in the world, we find ourselves bumping up against stuff. And I realise now, and I think this is true, they're actually fundamentally incompatible. They're two different ways of seeing the world. And they're just never really going to find a way to meet because when I was going through seminary, biblical stuff simply provided the raw fodder for the real stuff which was doing theology. That was our job, kind of mine the stuff from the soil, get all the gold nuggets together, hand them off to our theologians. They would then work on these things, you know, like the guys who designed the tabernacle and produced this glorious thing for the honour and glory of God. And we just go back and, you know, dig in our caves or whatever. Uh, No, right? I think these are fundamentally different. And uh, as you probably heard Edwin Judge say, I'm convinced, actually, the modern world is the product of Jerusalem. Now, I I just can't tell you how many amazing conversations. Since we met last time, I went to see my chiropractor. So actually, he he doesn't realise it, but he's the captive audience because he has to work on my back. So I've got him for about, you know, 35 minutes. He can't leave, right? So we got to know each other a bit, Yes. Hairdresser. And my hairdresser. There's not much hair to be dressed, I'm afraid. It's usually a very quick visit. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, my hairdresser. Um, it doesn't quite work with a dentist. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, Roger, of course, same church, yeah. So um, he's sitting down, well, I'm down and he's asking me what I'm doing and uh, what I'm researching. We've known each other for a bit. I said, well, I'm trying to write a commentary on Mark. Right? And, uh, you know, Mark has 16 chapters. I've written over 100,000 words, 100,000 words on chapter one. 
Now, you know, that, no, no, don't be impressed. That's just self-importance and pomposity, right? There's a major problem there that what took Mark one chapter to write, I have to take 100,000. Something is dreadfully wrong. Anyway, he said to me, what, what, is that that book in the Bible? And I said, yeah, that's right. And I could tell from the tone in his voice, like, are you serious? <laughs> what rock have you just crawled out from under? Right? And I said to him, well, you know, those of us who work in Mark, we actually think that it's the book that changed the world, believe it or not. Yeah, what do you mean? Right? So that led to a bit of a discussion about all the stuff we covered in the Athens-Jerusalem thing, right? the way you know God, the importance of the senses, all of that. And I won't, I'll never forget this. When I got to the end, he said, you know, Rick, I just have to tell you, he said, um, this is such, you have such a different way of putting it. You don't come across as an ideologue. You come across as an historian who's just talking about what happened and you're inviting people to think about it. He said, it's amazing. I'm fascinated, right? So, well, um, just yesterday, you know, um, my chiropractor wasn't quite working, so we're going to see a physio. And I got chatting to her about this, right? And the same response, just... She said, this is really interesting stuff. So I think there's something here, right? something really important for us, that the modern world is fundamentally the gift of Jerusalem and most of us Christians don't know it, which is a tragedy. Everyone I've spoken to who's interested in design, immediately their eyes light up when I talk about this and they're kind of amazed. What, you mean Christianity and radical transformation? How do those two go together? Right? Usually they're astonished and can't believe it. But it's a great thing to do that. All right, well, uh, and then we finished with a certain clip, which I have to show you again because you've listened to me for too long already. Okay, yes, I am an Apple evangelist, but... <laughs> but look at these words, folks. Right? The more you know the ancient world, you can't help but realise all of these are profoundly Christian. They really don't come from any other worldview. Right? It's just incredible. In fact, as you might know, the word Eden can actually be translated delight. That's how it began. And I think it's just really worth asking, you know, our experience of God and how we talk about him, does that engender delight? If it doesn't, we've got a problem. Either the way we're talking about him and or the God we're talking about, if it doesn't create delight, then we're probably talking about something else other than him. Right? Uh, there's probably a reason why the common people heard Jesus gladly and why they flocked to him. And there might be a reason why they don't do that for us, and it might not be because they're all wretched sinners. It might actually be because we've lost sight that this is actually about delight, freedom, creativity, etc. All right? Yeah, it could be too. Yeah. 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 Yep. And you know, the shocking thing is, it might be our fault. And by our, I don't mean those nasty conservatives out there. I mean this guy right here, right? that I've lost sight of what the gospel's on about. So, um, and I think, actually, that's probably true in some respects. I grew up in a tradition that I, I think didn't really get what this is on about. But So, um, does this really matter? And I actually think it does. So the thesis statement that was in uh, Tony's announcement, the grammar of design makes better sense of speaking of God's work in the world than theology does. And as I said earlier, I know it sounds very provocative uh, and I can hear some of my colleagues, uh, some more friendly than others, choking at this point. Others wanting to take me out for gentle counselling. Others wanting to burn me at the stake, actually. Right? Um, but, but please note, um, when I've said this, or when Tony put it this way, the grammar of design makes better sense. Notice better. 
I'm not saying that there's no room for theology, for theology or precision, that kind of careful thinking, but we're talking about what should take primacy right, in terms of the McGilchrist model, okay? right brain, left brain. And we probably need to bear in mind too that theology is like a bit of a wax nose. Right? You can twist it pretty much any way you want. Like the word postmodern can mean all manner of things to all manner of people. So it might depend what kind of theology we're talking about. Okay, so um, I would just want to pick up then on a bit of the history of theology tonight, where that word comes from. And the first thing to note is, um, as I said, it's not our word. word. We didn't invent it. It comes from Aristotle. And he's thinking about um, how we get to know stuff. Right? So things that are, how do we get to know them? And he says, well, there are two kinds of things. They're the things that are better known to us, and that includes the things we can handle, the material world around us we can engage with. Okay? You've got that. And then he says, there's stuff that's better known in themselves, in their essences. Now, these things are eternal, independent. Uh, they're not, not affected by any kind of change. And this is what he called theology. Right? So you might not normally associate just those categories of the idea of theology unless you have a particular view of God. So his notion of God is actually not personal, like the God of the Bible. It's kind of the prime mover, right? in some ways unfeeling, that kind of thing. Um, now, it, it just might say something. That if we use this kind of label to talk about our God, we might actually be getting ourselves into trouble because we're dealing with categories that don't really work with one another. But for him, this becomes the first and the highest science. Isn't that interesting? Now, that's where the word begins. Okay? Now, coming out of that, um, or at least after he writes, there's a chap in the first century called Andronicus of Rhodes, and he's the first one to kind of edit. Sorry? You did. Oh, very good. There you go. He did. So, <laughs> right, okay. Good. Um, <laughs> and he's the one who actually spoke of metaphysics. That's where that word comes from. And... Metaphysics simply means after you've done this stuff, so physis is where the word nature comes from, which, by the way, is not really found in Israel's scriptures. The first time you find the word physis is in the books of the Maccabees, but it's not part of the original Hebrew Bible. It doesn't think that way, and that might be worth reflecting on. Right? Maybe we should stop using the word nature. Right? To be truly Christian in our thinking, maybe talk about creation. might be a better way of doing it. Uh, we were in China, I think... The, about 15 years ago with some people from Regent and Laura Wilkinson, recently retired, uh, was asked to give a lecture, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. I think I mentioned this last time we were together, at least going there, but not this lecture. And they had simply not heard of the notion of creation. That's not part of Chinese thinking. And the, the intellectuals there realised what a radical idea this was because if there is something called a creation, that means there's a creator and that means you can't just do with it what you will. See, they know they have a massive environmental problem, but that's because they have no notion of the material world belonging to someone else. You, you just take it and use it and whatever, right? But the notion of creation actually puts some serious brakes on that, even though you'll find some Christians who can hardly wait for it to burn up. Okay? Creation also imply change as well. Sorry? Yeah, oh, yes, it will. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we talked about that last week, and that's um, because you see how this works, right? If you've got something that changes, remember we said if something changes, it can't be true? So that's why you want metaphysics. 
You want the stuff that doesn't change. If it's true, it can't change. Right? So you can see part of the driver and then theology, which he would then call the first and highest science. Right? And you only did that after you've done this other stuff, which, interestingly enough, was uh, kind of what happens when we do theology at seminary. Right? What do you get the Bible people to do to go back to this slide? Um, we do the gospel stuff, you know, the actual Israel and Yahweh and down in the dirt and Egypt and all that kind of stuff. And then you hand it over to the guys who do the serious work and they do the stuff that's eternal, independent, no change. That's what serious theology is about. Isn't that interesting? Even the order seems to follow our Hellenistic neighbours. I was going to say friends. I'm not quite sure at this point. Um, now, what are some of the assumptions and drivers that take us through this? Well, first of all, as we've seen, it's the primacy of reason. And underlying that is the assumption that God must be rational. Uh, what do you think about that assumption? We create God in our image. We do, yeah. But is God rational? He's also a God of love. Yeah. What, what do they mean when they say um, creation has to be rational? Uh, that's a great insight, but probably not what they mean. In fact, that's what a Christian would say. But what they mean by rational is that there's this echo of the logos in my head, which means what's in my head is what's out there. So all I need to do is come up with a rational explanation, and that's reality. Right? That's why they never develop experimental science. Right? If I can make sense of it in my head, that's how it has to be. That's all you have to do, right? Does it mean it can be proved? Sorry? Does it mean it can be proved in some way? Well, yeah, proof through demonstration, right? So uh, how do you do that through demonstration? Well, you know, like geometry, begin with your first principles and you work that through. That's how they did natural science back then. They didn't do experiment. They just sat down and thought about it. They observed if they came up with a good explanation, then that was the answer. And the classic example, uh, Edwin Judge, remember his, what was his great example? Loom weights, remember that? Yeah. Right? Everyone, everyone's going to remember that. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, you know, loom weights hang down and keep things trim, taut and terrific and men have things that hang down and that's why they're trim, taut and terrific and women don't, which is why they're loosey-goosey, right? And it stands to reason... And, you know, and therefore, it must be right. Now, you, we laugh at that, but don't forget, Aristotle's a really clever bunny. Right? And he can be deceived by this. So that's what that idea is all about. If it makes sense to me, it must be true. No. Huge mistake. You have to actually look at the world around you. Right? Now, I think that's where you want to come in, Brahma, because we're not saying that the world cannot be comprehended. But actually what we're saying is you have to look at the world to understand what it is. Right? You can't just simply assume you know because you come up with some kind of nice explanation. So, yeah. When Paul says do not rely on your own reasoning, yeah. is he talking about that? That's what he's talking about, I think. Yep, because right? that's, that, that's where they find truth. Right? Great insight. It's exactly what it is. Right? Brilliant. Thank you. Well done, you. Right. Free jar of Vegemite. <laughs> You'll have to show your pleasure. So if you like, this kind of reliance on reason um, really starts within. It's focused on what's going on between my ears. But 
what the Christian approach is, actually you have to look outside you. It starts outside rather than inside. Do you see that difference? So in this world, um, fact has to conform to reason. And in the Christian world, reason has to conform to fact. Right? So no one's predicting a crucified Messiah. No one. The disciples just have to deal with it because that's what's going on in front of them. Or a resurrection of one person when, you know, that's just not even an option. Either everyone's resurrected, everything's changed, Rome's destroyed, right? That's what you're expecting. And they get a single resurrection with nothing else changing. It's one of the reasons I'm convinced that has to have happened. There's no other way to explain it. It's just, it's so bizarre in terms of what their expectations might be. All right? So that's the first thing. Uh, Is it really science? Well, um, he calls theology the height of science, but actually, no, I've just tried to show that it isn't. Because it doesn't really pay attention to the world and let the world tell us what's going on. It basically imposes its rationality on the world. Now, this is is one of the areas where Bible people and theologians tend to get a little bit of an argy-bargy because we tend to think that theologians often want two neat solutions where we just don't think the biblical text allows you to do that. There's more ambiguity going on in some of that biblical text stuff, and you just kind of have to give that room to breathe rather than trying to eradicate it, it seems to me. The emphasis lies on human endeavour. So this is from the ground up. You start with human understanding, work your way. And behind this, I think, stands this drive for certainty in a world of change. Nothing is more threatening than uncertainty. We have to get some kind of purchase on this. Uh, Lauren Wilkinson used to point out that partly what drives Plato is the Greek world is in transition and he's trying to find some security. He looks at the world around him full of change. It can't be there. It's got to lie outside it somewhere. He's going to anchor his reality in that. Now, some of these things I'm sure you already know. I think what's critical coming out of this, though, is if you start there, then you cannot escape going in either one of two directions. You either go to determinism, which is what Stoicism is about, where nothing can change. Right? You have to go there. That's one of the options. Right? There's no escape. Start down the road of it has to be rational. You're going to end up with determinism where there's no room for freedom. Or it's all freedom and there's no order. So these would be the Stoics or the Epicureans. These are the two people Paul encounters on Mars Hill, two groups of people. You have to go that way, one or the other. Now, it doesn't matter which one of these you choose, you end up doing two things. First of all, the possibility of genuine change is excluded. If it's deterministic, there is no possibility of change. And on the other hand, if it's all just freedom like the swerving of atoms, it's all change. It's all meaningless, right? So you lose that. And not only that, you actually lose the notion of personhood. Because if you're a Stoic, you get absorbed in the impersonal logos. That's the goal of everything. Or if you're an Epicurean, then what you think is personhood is just epiphenomena. This is stuff that appears on top of things, epi on top of. It's not real, but it's just appearance on top of swerving atoms. That's all you are. Does that sound like the modern world, some of the options? Yeah, right, okay. Now, my statement would be, if you want to start with this Hellenistic model, that's where you have to end up. 
It's just the necessary force of the logic is going to take you there. You can't really escape it. You'll go one or the other, but there's no halfway house. If you pursue that, that's where you end up going. Now, people might try to hop off the train before they get to the end of the station, but they're not actually following it all the way through. Okay? Now, on top of all of that, it seems to me, is this problem of transcendence. And that is, um, there's something about being human that enables us in our experience to actually feel as though we're not totally determined by our environment. And in a sense, even the Greeks recognised that. Now, don't ask me what that's got to do with transcendence, but I just thought I'd get your attention. So, you know, okay. um, there's a sense in which reason transcends the changeful world around them. So they kind of get that. Or if you listen to McGilchrist, you know, you've got the frontal lobes in our brain that enable us to step back from the immediacy of the world. Remember that? He talked about you either bite or you run. It's too close, you can't see anything. Right? Too far away, you can't read it. Uh, we have this frontal lobe that enables us to function in some kind of transcendent way. Uh, it seems to me that what happens is, if you go down the Hellenistic road, you end up somehow denying what we know to be true. That in fact, we do change our minds. Right? We are able to create. Right? Our whole legal system is based on the fact that people are not just random swervings of atoms, and we make decisions. We're not just determined. Imagine a culture where you actually followed either of those two conclusions all the way through to the end. Uh, what would that mean for your society? What would that mean for human creativity, etc.? All right? So, the problem of transcendence that emerges out of this. Well, what I want to bring us to now is to ask the question, right? given that that's the, the origins of theology, is this language an appropriate way to talk about God? Should we even use the word to describe what we do? Are we doing a rationality of theos that's driven by just sheer force of you know, logic from first principles? Is that what we do? Should we even organise theology in that way? Which is often what happens if you look at the way theologies are organised. They do have this conceptual pattern to them. You start at one point and then kind of by the force of logic you work your way through Right, from God down to eschatology. It's kind of a historical relation to it, but there's also this logical, almost stair-like or tree-like development. Now, is that actually what you see in Scripture? I don't think so. But theology and God, well, there are some positives. Yahweh says, on the Lord I don't change. He's eternal. Right? That's the kind of stuff that Theologos deals with. Not part of nature. Surely that's God. That's one of the great insights of Genesis. God is not to be identified with his creation, and he's the creator, right? He's the first cause. So, okay, you can see why that might be attractive to some people. Okay. But if you stop and think about it, how actually do we get to know Yahweh? We get to know him through experience. Right. Now, you might be thinking, why does this even matter? Well, I think it's absolutely critical in terms of how we live in our Christian lives. If we start with a way of thinking where it's all driven by the necessary determinism of logic, that's going to look a very different thing from actually if you take experience seriously. Very different world. Now, Yahweh, you know him through experience. It's pretty clear that you don't know him through metaphysical speculation. Nowhere in the biblical text do you ever see people doing philosophy to find out what God's like. 
You just don't, right? Right? I just don't do that. Yes, questions, please. Is there a reason you use the word experience and not relationship? Yep, um, I want to use experience because experience takes into a, um, I think it's a bigger word than relationship. Relationship is part of that, but it also encounters me bumping up against the table, uh, includes me bumping up against the table, things like that, right? It's just, that's what humans do. You kind of start with this stuff around you and you have to pay attention to it. So, is that right? Relationships part of that. Good question. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, now think about that, right? Um, how does Israel get to know Yahweh in that Bible? How do they get to know him? Through experience, right? In fact, if you look at what they're told over and over again through the book of Exodus is, right, pay attention. You yourselves saw, you yourselves heard. How does Peter learn that actually now the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on people who are not circumcised? Right? As a dream, right? right? Thinking, boy, I can't eat this stuff, this is unclean, and God gives him, no, 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 you know, don't call unclean what I call clean. Very next thing, there's a knock at the door, and who turns up? Oh, a whole series of serried propositions. No, right? <laughs> Two Gentile guys with some cock and bull yarn about Cornelius to whom an angel's supposed to appear. Right now, you just... It's experience that drives that. Okay. So I think to somehow say, just blanket statement that our experience ought not to be a driver for theology just goes entirely against the way scripture operates. Now, I do get what they're trying to say, right, that I just can't impose my individual experience on those things. But the danger is we just rule out experience altogether, and I don't think you can do that. Right? Uh, in fact, what scripture does, its very nature is an historical account of Yahweh's self-revelation, beginning with the Torah, based around the Exodus, then up through the prophets and the writings, right? That's a, Israel's historical encounter with Yahweh. Right? Yep. Uh, yeah. Um, in Hebrews chapter 1, mm -hmm. it says, you know, how God spoke to us through the prophets. Yep. And, yep. and then, you know, when yeah. Jesus uh, yep. went to heaven... So he spoke to us through apostles. And yeah, yeah. And through his son. Yep. So, so it's quite, quite um, uh, still like you're through the prophets before the scriptures were written. Mm -hmm. so, so now we have the scripture. Mm -hmm. So God speaks to us through the scripture as well as through the Holy Spirit with some of my right. African friends. Right. And there's yeah. sort of sensationalists that I'm, yeah. you know, there's sort of, oh, yeah. no, there are no prophets yeah. or. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, kind of things. So I'm yeah. thinking, well, I, I, I have a view that God yeah. still speaks through experience and yeah. through prophets, through the Holy Spirit, as well mm -hmm. as the Word of God. Mm -hmm. So somehow they need to match. Yes. Don't you think? Yeah, and they do. If it's the same Spirit, the character is going to be consistent. Yeah. Right? That's one of the things we'll get onto when we get to design. At the heart of design, I think, in part lies character. And that's one of the key things in Scripture, the character of Yahweh that keeps coming through. Right? Um, yeah, the whole question of cessationism we could maybe talk about at another time, but I, I think that's probably more an imposition than... Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. So I simply want to say here that biblically, so, you know, let's forget our personal experience and look at the way the Bible comes at stuff. It doesn't learn about Yahweh through metaphysical speculation. It actually learns about Yahweh by its experience, what it sees, what it touches, what it handles. That's central to all of that, right? Now... 
what's really interesting, it seems to me, right, um, can I suggest it's precisely because we know Yahweh this way that we don't get trapped in either determinism or relativism. This is the great gift. Because we don't depend on the determinism of logical rationality. Do you understand what I mean by that? Have you ever derived equations in school? Maybe you had to do that. Those, some of you loved it. The rest of us kind of like, oh my Lord, have mercy, right? And there was this necessary driver. I mean, it was rigid. There was no escape, right? It was just dung, 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 okay? That's what I mean by logic. That's not how we get to know Yahweh, and it's an incredible gift because it doesn't lock you into either of these two. Start with that approach, and you have to end up either here or here. You have no other choice, right? Just start there, and that's going to be the outcome. But we're starting with something else, which means actually we're not locked into either this or this because we're not coming at it on the basis of what you humans regard as logical or rational. Now, I think this is partly what Yahweh means, as I've said before, when he says to people, I am who I am. Now, you know, you tell a Hellenistic person that, oh, yes, he's the ground of all being. You ever heard that stuff? As if that's what Moses is thinking about, you know, 800 years before Plato. I don't think so. Uh, I think it's God's way of saying, don't guess. You've never met a God like me. How are they going to get to know him? By seeing and listening and paying attention. So... For that reason, right, we know only we Yahweh. Sorry, we know Yahweh really only through history. Only through history, not through rationality. So the question is, um, why would we choose a way of knowing that's based on the fun, or the way of talking about God that's based fundamentally on a rationalist approach, as opposed to a narrative approach? Now, I'm kind of echoing what I was saying the other day. I think God got it right the first time when he gave us scripture. I think there's something profound about the way scripture is put together that's much more along the lines of networks that recognises that it can't be simply abstracted into either a tree or a series of ladders or something like that. Right? It's much more complex and relational. Well... What that means then for me is that uh, we don't actually need metaphysics. Remember metaphysics? It's what you have to do to get to the eternal. You're starting with all the stuff around you that changes and you have to get beyond that. Why don't we need a metaphysics? Because we don't know God through rationality. We don't know him in that sense of logical and unchanging. That's not how he comes to us. We actually know him through history and through experience. The great thing about that is um, we don't have to guess because the God who made the world actually comes into our world and the Hebrew scriptures apparently have no qualms that God can reveal himself as he is in his created world. Whereas the Hellenists are always worried that the material world somehow distorts reality. You never see that in the scriptures. Never. Right? There's no hint anywhere that you're not actually getting to know who Yahweh is in his creation. I think that's that's an amazing thing. We have talked about this before, but it means creation is not the enemy. For the Hellenistic world, the physical, uh, Hellenistic mind, the physical world was a problem because it distorted. It had to. 
Every time perfection came into that world, it would get distorted. But that's not the view of the Bible. Actually, it's the gift of change that becomes the foundation for knowing Yahweh. You couldn't know him apart from a world that's gifted with change. Now, this emphasis on change, what's that pointing to? That's what design is all about. Design is the grammar of change. Unfortunately, too much of our theology is the grammar of no change. So um, that's kind of phenomenal. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. You get to know Yahweh through history, and you only get to know him because you get to see his different responses in different situations. How do I get to know you? Not by watching you sit still in your chair like that and never moving. Right? I get to know you by watching you in action, a whole range of different circumstances. That would not even be a possibility in a world where there could be no change. Not even a possibility for that to work. Change is the presupposition of getting to know Yahweh. Wow. So what does that say about how we should talk about him? Is the right way to talk about him in terms of these eternal maps, trees or whatever? Or is it a much more dynamic thing? So I think for the Hebrew Bible, the problem actually is not change. That's not the issue. That was a big problem for the Hellenists. But it's not, the problem, not a problem for us. Change is the gift. The real question for us is what do you do with the privilege of bringing change? So in their world, they're trying to conform to the Logos. It's not, you're not really interested in changing much at all because you can't. That's the way things are, and your job is to conform to that. You don't really have any possibility of genuine transformation, not even an option. But in this world, we really can change things. That's a very different question now. What drives that? So, you see, our knowledge is not about how do we grasp the stuff that doesn't change. That's not our concern, not even our world. Our question is, what do we do with the change we've been given? This privilege to change the world, what do we do with that? Now, that to me seems to be the stuff that design is on about. Now, it might be worth reflecting on that a bit in terms of um, you know, how we preach in churches and the way we talk about God. And I mean, how much of it is actually based on conforming and how much of it is actually based on radical transformation? Now, I'll unpack a bit more about conforming here. Uh, When we ask questions about who God is, the answers are very different. In the Hellenistic world, they're concerned with substance. That's what physis means. Right? Aristotle starts with substance. The things that are close to us, that we can know, right, that we're familiar with, stuff that's not, we have to know in themselves. It's totally foreign to what's going on in the biblical text. What's the key thing you need to know about Yahweh? His character. That's the thing that comes out over and over again. Right? The critical moment at Mount Sinai is not God coming down and saying E equals MC squared or something. Right? What's the critical moment? I am who I am. Who are you? What does that look like? Right? You don't get a predicate to that. So Moses goes off and says, I am has sent me, and they start to see who the I am is through his mighty deeds as he rescues them from Egypt. And then they see him when he stands on the rock Remember we talked about that story? Yes? No? Remember that one? 
Planet Earth calling? Is that a yes or a no? Or do you know the story? Know what I'm alluding to? Okay. Okay. This is really critical, folks. It's one of the just absolutely central moments of the biblical revelation. I think they've just crossed the Red Sea. It's great. They've had their wonderful song and dance. Miriam's just led them in a new rap rendition of praise to the Lord. Wonderful stuff. You know, just totally beats out anything Hillsong could do. Right? Uh, all praise to Hillsong. Not knocking them, but you know. Maybe that's where Hillsong began. Miriam and the women doing their tambourine stuff. Certainly the Salvation Army did. Okay. Uh, so this is all fantastic. And then they arrive in this place and there's no water. Remember the accusation? right? You brought us out here to kill us. You know what happens next? Moses runs to Yahweh. Yahweh says, come with me, take that staff. Why that one? right? And then Yahweh stands on the rock and says, whack me and see what happens. You think I'm like those gods? Watch what I do. Right? And he bleeds living water. That's what's going on at the end of John's Gospel. When Jesus' blood and water come from his side. That's not to answer questions of medicos who are wondering if Jesus is dead or not. Give me a break. As if John's trying to be a medical handbook. No, that's a statement about what you see. This is the same God who stood on the rock, right? bleeding living water for his people. That's what that symbolism is. Okay? Now, that comes to a climax at Mount Sinai when they worship the golden calf and it's Israel's idolatry that actually brings forth the revelation of God's character. And it doesn't happen just on its own. There's a Moses in there. Someone who knows enough of God's character to go up the mountain and say, I've been watching you. I know something about you. You can't do this. And what's the stunning thing that happens? God relents. Now, if you're doing theology in terms of eternal and unchanging, that's going to flip every switch you have. Things are going to come just popping apart at the seams. But not if, actually, change is at the very heart of God's creation. Okay. Any questions about that? Two people gathered in my name. Yep. In prayer. Mm-hmm. So identification, yep. you know, that relationship, yep. this is yep. changeable. Yeah, prayer can change things. This is an astonishing thought, isn't it? You can actually change God's mind. Uh, yeah. yeah, and it depends, you're right, it depends on the kind of theology you have. Um, we had a guy who used to teach us systematics at Gordon Cromwell, and his prayers were absolutely fabulous. But there are other guys who just seem like a mathematical exercise. But yes, it can be that, right? Because you're trying to get the logic all sorted out. Okay. Now, it's about character, okay? Now, think about that. If this is true, then the fundamental substance of the universe is not stuff, but it's personal. Now, can you hear just what a radically different view that is? That's it's not determinism, where you really have no choice whatsoever. You just have to conform. And it's not randomness, where there's just so much stuff going on, you have no significance. What the biblical view is saying is that the heart of reality is actually personhood. Which means you are not some strange epiphenomenon at the end of the you know, evolutionary cycle or whatever. This ability, this being a person is actually the pinnacle and the heart of creation. Now, we can say yes to all of that, but it's worth thinking about. Because what do you know about persons? If reality is not rational but rather personal, 
What do persons do? Well, you know persons through their actions. And what's action about? It's the word agency. You familiar with the word agency? It's not like you've got a real estate agent. An agent is someone who acts. They have agency. Right? So this half full glass of wine doesn't have agency, but I do if I pick it up and spill it on your lap. Right? So there's agency happening. Okay? That's what we can do. Right? We have agency. Now, this was John McMurray's critique of Descartes. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And McMurray said, you're wrong. People are not just thinkers. They're agents. We act. We do things. In fact, those of us who kind of work in engineering or people in design will know that you actually learn a lot in the process of acting. As you engage with the world, it's this iterative back and forth thing. Right? I'm sorry about this, but you know, the Apple thing. Right? They, um, I was just struck by the fact that they would never just deal with drawings. They'd always make models of stuff, three-dimensional models you could touch and handle and engage with. There's something about that I think is profound. Um, there's a chap called Jim Battista Vico. Ta-da, you all heard of him, right? And he critiques Descartes. Descartes says, I think before I am, and what does Vico say? You really only know what you yourself have made. That's such a different way of understanding knowing. You really only know what you yourself have made, and it's partly a critique of Descartes. You can't presuppose you know the universe, mate, because you didn't make it. So knowledge is not about demonstration, it's about discovery. And how do you discover? Through seeing and touching and handling. And this process then becomes open-ended. I'm going a little bit off track here, but you see, if you, if you get to know the world through discovery and you start to engage with it and you create things, it actually changes the horizons in which you work. Now think about this. Descartes gets his telescope, right? He's at a certain point in history, and he can see that the moon's not perfect. He's a long way from black holes. He's not yet at a point where he even knows that's a question to ask. But the nature of this creation is such, as you begin to learn more about it and engage with it and invent things to get to know it better, it keeps changing the horizons. It just gets bigger and bigger, and there's more room for iterative creation. You see that? Now, we'll talk about that a bit later on, but if you've got that kind of freedom, what's going to govern you? What's going to help you make the right choices? Well, I think that's where character comes in. That's why the Bible makes such a big point about Yahweh's character. If you have this incredible freedom in a world where as you learn more and engage with it, you actually change the horizons in which you know and in which you act. Right? You get that? I mean, just put that over against Hellenism. I mean, are you guys with me? On the, this is extraordinary stuff. Right? If you're not Pentecostal now, you should be. Right? I mean, just, this is incredible stuff. I mean, do you want to be locked in, in determinism where nothing ever happens or this chaotic randomness? Or where in a world where actually we can change the world as we get to know it? New horizons open up, new potential for development. Right? That's just mind-boggling. I'm going to go talk to some pagans. They get much more excited about this than you do. Okay. I think we've been, uh, <laughs> Sorry, I'm being we've naughty been here. Totally enculturated in, in an evolutionary mechanistic worldview. Right. So what you're saying is just not to most people in our culture um, understandable at all. Because we're so com comprehensively enculturated in a materialist, 
making us globular. But we have to, it's revolutionary to break out of that. Well, um, can I be naughty enough to beg to differ? I've just had so many conversations in the last couple of months where I've talked about this with people, their eyes have just lit up right? because they understand about design. They know that stuff happens. Right? Um, now, that's another conversation we can have about that other worldview. Uh, you know, there's a phenomenon that goes on. You know, the new iPhone, that's, that's a five, not a ten. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I think there is that sense of people getting the edge of the possibility of design and they don't really know where it comes from. So when I said to my physio, you know, she's asking me, so, you know, what do you do? And I told her about this and I said, well, one of the things I'm interested in is I started off as an engineer and, and now I kind of do theology. Like, well, that's a big change, right? <laughs> and then you tell her, well, actually, it's because I'm interested in the origins of design. In the ancient world, design wasn't really a concept in the way that we have it. Design was about attaining perfection in a certain kind of way that it didn't really, I think, have the same option for real change. We can talk about that a bit later on uh, when we get to rhetoric and Aristotle. But the notions that we have with design, where just things are just wide open as the technology develops, that was totally foreign to them. That's the gift of the gospel. I should bring this to a close because I've been going for a while, haven't I? Um, you might be falling asleep. Some of you. Yes. Oh, um, okay, that's, um, I don't think I mentioned the word Anglicanism, so, but, I'll, but, I'll, but I'll leave that to you. <laughs> uh, oh, oh you can, yeah, I think, you, yeah, I, I don't think it's easy to put labels of that kind, but you'll find this in the Greek Orthodox Church too, right? It's, uh, I mean, they're huge in this way of thinking too at some point, so... Uh, You'd have to look at each one in particular. I think what I'm trying to do at this point, rather than um, necessarily take the stick to some people that might sound an awful lot like I am, is to say, look, there's another option that I think is more biblical and more open. Oh, sorry, beg your pardon. Yep. Do you think the Catholics with the same traditions or better job of lifting up personal experience? Not really. No. No. Um, in fact, you had to get rid of it. Okay, so people will ask, uh, why did it take so long for modernity to develop? I, personally, I think the problem came when the early church fathers post-apostolic tried to marry the best of Hellenism with the best of Jerusalem. And then, you know, dear old brother Augustine, incredibly bright guy, I mean, astonishingly bright, he doesn't need me to say it, you know. But you know, his dalliance with Platonism and Hellenism and, you know... I know right now there's kind of a real interest in some of those church fathers, and I get that. Um, but I think there's some real dangers there too, right? Um, the amount of speculation that goes on that's based on what they think uh, is theologically informed reason. Uh, you could make a case that actually Basil the Great's notion of the monastery owed far more to Hellenistic views of the isolated philosopher than it did to the scriptures. Right? Um, again, you know, it's a, a bit kind of a... But what's the worst schism that's divided the church? Debates over the Trinity, right? And what created that problem when they try to unpack that in terms of Hellenistic ontology, right? 
The New Testament never does that. Why does Paul never worry about the metaphysics behind his experience of Jesus? Why doesn't he worry about that? Because he's not a Hellenist. He doesn't even live in that world. The Yahweh he knows is a God who comes to him in history. That's how he thinks. Right? The medical metaphysical is totally foreign to his way of thinking. We get involved in that and you try to come up with these metaphysical solutions and it's just split the church and we've never recovered from it. Okay? So it, I'm not trying to rag on everything Hellenistic, right? but I'm after these particular things. All right, I need to scoot through this so I'll get moving a bit more quickly. Uh, what happens then is our transcendence is grounded in God. You don't start with logic, you start with who God is and I think that explains why we can function as creators, mini-creators. Right? So we're not merely thinkers, we're agents, we create. Now, I understand we don't create ex nihilo, and as I say that, I'm well aware of the debate around Genesis 1. But Yahweh baraz, that's that Hebrew word, right? We yatsar, we form and fashion, we don't create like he does in that sense. And uh, looking at Ron here, I'm talking about Newtonian mechanics at the level of aircraft and iPhones and what happens at the subatomic level, I will defer to your greater knowledge. Okay, But um, we're agents who act in this way. So I want to suggest then that actually um, theology is not a noun. That's not what it is. Uh, actually, theology is a verb. Right? It's about action. It's about creativity, engaging in the world. Uh, it's agency, but not just agency. Agency without hope is the worst of two worlds. You've got prisoners and you want to break them, what do you do? Here's a pile of dirt, move it over here. Then when they're done, move it back. You want to destroy somebody, give them agency and make it meaningless. That's worse almost, worse almost than no agency at all. No, agency really is only life-giving when you have hope. And that's the great Christian contribution or the great scriptural contribution that the world can be different. Yahweh says, behold, I do something new. Just run through the book of Isaiah. You have not seen it before, right? The notion of something new is our contribution. Now, can I suggest to you that's what we ought to be known for? We should be innovators of all people. Now, not wild stuff that's just doing whatever we wish because it's grounded in Yahweh's character. But we ought to be innovators. Right? The Stoic could act, but it changed nothing. All his actions could be was to conform to the Logos that already determined how things were going to be. Right? Now, uh, it, of course, if you look at the first century, people actually did stuff because they're made in God's image made in God's image whether they know it or not. So they'll do, still do stuff even though they don't realise that philosophically they shouldn't. It should be, it should be impossible. I, I, you can put that on the other foot if you like. You know, so many Australians are just thoroughgoingly Christian and don't even know it. They're trafficking on the gift of the gospel. What was that wonderful phrase you had, Anne? Can you remember? You come up with a beautiful one in the kitchen. Right? There are all these people who deny God, but actually their whole life is built on the truth of the gospel. Right? Uh, excuse me. Right? Well, need to get through this. All right, so John's Logos as we come to a conclusion here. Uh, 
It's true that John starts with the Logos. Everyone's familiar with that. Many of the church fathers love it. Uh, and of course, the implication of that for many Christians is that you can do Theologos, right? Because it starts with that. But if that's what John thought, why doesn't he do it? Read John's Gospel. He just doesn't do theology in that way. What does he focus on? Person, yeah, person, and a story. First century Jewish person. Okay. So um, I think I'd like to say to paraphrase Paul in Galatians 3.3, 3, if our historical Jerusalemite knowledge of Christ and subsequent experience of his spirit did not begin with the reason speculation of elite Athenian flesh, right, what makes us think that we will come to perfection in that way? Trying to get that one? If this project didn't begin with rational speculation, what makes us think that that's the way we bring theology to perfection? Why would you do that? In fact, it might just do the opposite. It might be one of the reasons why Christians are often not very well known for being able to deal with change or innovation. Well, I think what's going on when John uses this word is it's much more like Nietzsche's transvaluation. He's taking a word and revaluing what that meant in the Greco-Roman world. And what you get then is actually Jesus. So John's brilliant. He takes these Hellenistic universals, light, dark, above, below, water and wine, and locates every one of them in Israel's narrative. That's the only way they actually make sense, is in the context of Israel's God and narrative. Is that a comment? Just so the yeah. opening of John's Gospel is a stunning, I think it's probably the most, you began by saying we need to know how to talk to our generation. Yeah. You know, you've given stories on how you yeah. begin with your physiotherapist and mm-hmm. don't begin with what they mm-hmm. expect you to say coming mm-hmm. from the Christian camp. You begin with something that's much closer to their world and mm-hmm. working towards it. Mm-hmm. And uh, the opening, given that he had a Jewish audience and a Greek audience, yeah. both who were hostile, is massive. Yeah. yeah. In one sentence, he was lassoed yeah. in both. Yeah. The transvaluation is for the Jews as well. Absolutely. Uh, yep. Mm-hmm. It's not Torah. It's kind yep. of acknowledging your instincts. Yeah. We're, we've all got a hunger and yeah. desire yeah. for meaning. Yeah. And I'm going to, yeah. like Paul at Mars Hill, I'll yeah. honour that. Yeah. He's honouring the... Yeah. yeah. There's something wonderful about dear old Plato. I mm. mean, he was searching for a truth. He didn't go the right way. He was trying. Yeah. I believe. And okay. so were the Jews. They yeah. weren't getting there. But yeah. Yeah. I just think to begin yeah. Well, it's, you know, I hear that. It's, um, it's interesting. There's a text in John where Jesus says, all who came before me, all who came before me were thieves and robbers. Now think about that. Who do you know who came before Jesus in the Jewish narrative? Moses? Isaiah? Does he mean that? Can he really say that? Well, what if what Jesus is recognizing, that the law came through Moses, but it could never bring you grace and spirit. And to that extent, the stay with Moses when Jesus has come was actually to go with what would become a thief and a robber. I mean, it's just mind-boggling stuff. And I think for these guys, they really do see this as a mortal conflict because you're not going to come into a world that's about life and flourishing until you really deal with some of the presuppositions of this stuff. Because whether in Judaism, right? because the law will never bring you resurrection, it'll never give you spirit, 
And in Hellenism, what did it lead to? Stultification, no change, rigid hierarchies. So I, now, at the same time, I want to affirm that when Paul stands on Mars Hill, he says to the Epicureans and the Stoics, you're right in your critique of idolatry. Right? He can do that. At the same time, he's pretty serious in his claim that actually you're ignorant and you don't know what you're talking about. So that's probably a further conversation to have. But I think if I can just say, when I talk to, I think where I might differ from Paul is that my physio actually lives in a Christian world, whether she knows it or not. Because its driving presuppositions are all Christian. And I think what shocks her is to realise, my goodness, I didn't realise, like the limo driver. The shock is the world I live in actually is the world that this Christian God who I thought didn't like actually gave me, didn't like me, actually gave me. But this would be an interesting conversation to pursue a bit more, how you engage in personal evangelism. Uh, so I think probably um, we should call it quits. Is that right? We've been at this for a while. What I'll come back and do some of this stuff next time, but I'd like to show a little clip before we go. We'll come back and talk about this stuff later on. Uh, but uh, compelling narratives, that's for next time. But this might add a little bit of levity to finish with. Right? And I'll throw what I can do about the sound here. Okay, well, thank you. Um, time to go. Questions, answers, whatever. So uh, this is from the Sciences of the Artificial. Um, everyone designs who devises courses of action aimed at changing existing situations into preferred ones. So it's very... Every, everyone designs who devises courses of action aimed at changing existing situations into preferred ones. And um, he was actually arguing that, you know, medicine does that and all professions do that. But it's, it's a famous definition of design. Yeah. Uh, and I guess... Um, That's the gospel, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it's a, yeah, the other thing I was thinking about as you were talking is that uh, I, I really believe that we have to fashion the gospel for our generation, which has got specific issues and problems, which you mentioned with modernity and mechanistic thinking and so on. So I think the way that the, this kind of interest in design and change is a, a fitting recovery of parts of the gospel for the world we live in. But, um, OK, anyone want to make other comments or ask other questions? We're just going to ask if you can speak into the mic so that we get it. Yep. Um, the idea of change and prayer, I always thought that, well, I'm very happy that my idea and our idea of God has changed in my lifetime, in humanity's lifetime, different cultures and all the rest of it. 
So what I thought at the age of 20 is not what I think God is at the age of 60. But I think that's me that's changed. I'm not sure that it's God has changed. And you said that um, prayer can change God's mind. I am happy that prayer changes us and makes us want to change the world. But can you give me some examples of our prayer changing God's mind? Thank you very much. Um, well, the classic case for me is what happened on Mount Sinai. Uh, it's, uh, and I think it's part of the revelation of God's character. I, mean, I am who I am. Well, who are you? And the climax is they've just gone after the golden calf, which everyone recognises, any culture recognises, is worthy of death. No one would debate God's decision to destroy them for that. I mean, that's just heinous, right? But Moses goes up the mountain and says, actually, I've been watching, you know, something about your character. And we're actually told, right? And God relented. And that's when you get the proclamation of the name. I am the Lord will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, which is not about predestination. It's about actually you can ask for God to have mercy because that's his character. You see that? So it's mercy, not justice. Justice is you get what you deserve and there's no point asking about anything. Mercy actually opens up another avenue. It also so, opens up an awful problem with I'm asking God to have mercy on a child who's got cancer, but he doesn't seem to... Right. Oh, yes. I'm not yeah. convinced yet. Yeah. Yeah. No, it does open up an enormous... Sorry. It opens up another problem called traffic amongst the chairs. Right? Um, don't mean to trivialise that. Look, it does. It, you know, I'd lost both my parents to cancer, right? in spite of you know, everyone praying and doing all kinds of things. But that's the nature of mercy. Right? So I think here's an example that might help, but may not. Um, you remember the tsunami that went through Southeast Asia, right? I had a phone call from a woman uh, when I was at Regent and she was very upset about this and, you know, how can a loving God cause this to happen? And, and you understand this is not the time to have a philosophical discussion, in inverted commas, right? not a time to have a, an explanation. What she needs is a hug, right? She needs just that kind of thing, the human communication. But as I stopped and thought about it, um, you know, if we had a, another time to talk after we got through some of that emotional stuff, Okay, so 250,000 people died. God should act for that, okay? And I don't mean to be trivial, but what if it's only 200,000? What about 50,000? Right? What about, well, only if it's 11 but not 10? Do you want to be the person who goes and talks to the 10 parents to say, sorry, you didn't quite make the cut? Right? And, and what if it's, you know, okay, God should say people are going to die, but not the people being horribly tortured and suffer for year after year. Well, you shouldn't intervene with that only with death. And I'm, I'm not trying to be precious about this. I think what it shows is there's a spectrum of evil and there's no neat cut-off point. Right? If we want God to intervene to, to do something with 150,000, that includes everything, even to judging the person who has a wicked thought about somebody else because there's no break point. Right? You, you really can't find a place where you can say, okay, here's a division. Well... God is going to intervene. That's what eschatology is about. There is going to come a day when God will come and everything's going to be dealt with across the whole spectrum. And that will be justice. 
But in the meantime, we get mercy. And the nature of mercy is you can't predict it. Justice you can. There's a mathematical logic to justice. I don't think there is to mercy. And it's, it's the proper, I, I think, response, how God should act in a world prior to that final all-encompassing action. I, don't, I just don't think there's any other option. Yeah. I think the problem of the God and suffering is different from what you were talking about tonight about change. And it's just the idea of our prayer changes God just worries me a bit. That's all. I'll think it through. Yeah. Yeah. I just to repeat for, ahead, yeah, yeah. for the just for the tape. I mean, the, the three big words were change, uh, suffering, and our role in that via prayer. I guess. Um, m- m- my view is that we haven't been very good at develop a theology of change or even a theory of change is much trickier uh, than a theory of, uh, of, of stasis. Um, it's much trickier. Um, and that's why I actually think, for all the brilliance of Aristotle and so on, they went to a simpler message. I actually have a huge... I used to be down on Plato, but now I really am sympathetic because I think he fundamentally understood what you're talking about that change is bad, because it's change that brings about the child's cancer. The same change that makes me uh, rejoice that our little twins had their fourth birthday is the same change that's bringing me my 66th one. And somewhere you kind of go over the hill and you wish you didn't have any more birthdays. But when they're little, it's great. And so this change is just like a big, messy type of thing. And is it good? Is it bad? And I certainly believe that that is intrinsic in creation, that once God established a created order subject to time and space, now the great conundrum is how can glory inhabit time and space? And so ultimately the incarnation was our answer to that and we'll get the final answer in the end. But I think uh, I'm now much more attracted to the idea that you're advancing. I mean, I... When I see the Bible and read it as a literary scholar, God is part of his incarnation, actually beginning in the Old Testament, is I'm going to surrender myself to uh, some, of the, some of the world you're in. And I, I, I read a lot of the Old Testament. He's looking for someone on the other side to have an argument with him, be it Moses, be... It says it, I think it's Isaiah, a phenomenal passage. I looked and looked and there was no one. No one to stand up. You know, truth was crippling in the streets and there was no one. And um, we won't keep going on like this because perhaps we should have a longer talk on it next year. But uh, Edwin Judge uh, made a profound point to me just in conversation some time ago about the word prayer. Mm. And I wish I could remember exactly the translation, but I know exactly what he was talking about conceptually. What he was saying is that the traditional view of prayer is a recitation, the cultic view of prayer yeah, yeah. is a recitation, you know, to the Almighty um, uh, and so on. But the word Paul uses for prayer and the, is much more like a, an argument and a wrestling. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, it's, the, the real image is actually not a religious image at all. It's somebody making a case, um, as you do. And so God wants somebody to make a case. And um, I guess uh, that's, uh, that's very interesting. And how much in the flux of change we get healing and we don't get healing. Uh, we get, you know, well, that's all part of it. So we, big one, that one. Well, well um, I just like one little comment to finish. Sure. I think, um, there's a, a guy who wrote a book called, uh, oh, oh, 
what's his name, French man, wrote a book on Genesis. Um, had it and then it went. Evil and the Cross by... <clears throat> Thin little book. But he says, anyone who tries to solve the, solve the problem of evil as it exists in our present world either tells lies about evil or lies about God or lies about both. And I was struck by that because I think actually um, if you can rationally explain evil, you've given it a home in the creation and it doesn't belong. And I think that's why it's absurd in that profound sense. Uh, the thing that makes evil so abhorrent is there's a residue of stuff that's totally inexplicable and you can't deal with. Right? Now, I... I understand, I think, I don't want to sound... Um, I can appreciate where Tony's coming from. But what makes me less comfortable with Plato is I think he ended up selling the farm. Oh, yes, he did. And, and the results were probably even worse than what he was dealing with, I think. Right? So it's, there's a sense in which I understand the motivation, but if I look at the outcome of where he went, the suffering that that meant for so many people... Didn't really bother him too much in one sense. I mean, yes, he thought about it, but he's an elite male. Right? He doesn't have to deal with the thousands of people who go through the slave markets every day, you know, Delos and other places. And in fact, he kind of justified that in a strange kind of way. So um, I, I do agree with Tony. I think there's an, a huge amount of stuff at stake when you start talking about the issue of change and the freedom that that brings with it. It's phenomenal. And I think that's why, in the end, um, I'll just finish with this. I have a student who's doing a PhD on um, social justice at Hillsong, actually, or Masters, I should say, and he wants to talk about that. And I said, you ever noticed how the language justice, it's all over Israel's scriptures, mishpat, zadakah, that kind of thing, um, but it's just not there when you get to the New Testament. And why is that? And I think what happens is, in Jesus, there's a whole, again, transvaluing. We don't do justice, we do love and mercy. That's what characterises us. And there's a different logic to that that kind of defies logic, actually.